Welcome to Live from My Drum Room for a very special episode celebrating the 60th anniversary of the Beatles' first appearance on The Ed Sullivan Show, February 9th, 1964. This show is recorded live on February 9th, 2024, exactly 60 years later. And uh, you'll see I'm joined by my guests, Jim Keltner, Joe Vitale, Andy Newmark, Stan Lynch, and later Kenny Aronoff. And uh, we talk about how that night affected all of us. For me personally, I was only three years old, three years and two months old. So I can't say that I actually watched the Ed Sullivan show that night, but I certainly felt the impact years later, as did many people my age. But we'll hear from these legendary drummers on how it impacted them. And uh, it was such a historic evening in so many ways. It changed popular music forever, pop culture. Beatlemania was born. It created what we call the Beatle boom in the uh, musical instrument business for many decades. In fact, I'd argue that today that instrument companies are still reaping the benefits of the Beatle boom, uh, which started that night in 1964. The next day, every kid on every street wanted to be in a band, whether it was a playing guitar, playing bass, or the cool kids wanting to play the drums. Uh, it was just an amazing time, uh, and, I, and I remember that part of it for sure. Certainly influenced my wanting to be a drummer later on. And for me personally, working for Zildjian for 24 years, I remember uh, speaking with my dear friend and my former boss, the late, great Armin Zildjian, who told me, and he's quoted as saying this, in fact, that by the end of 1964, Zildjian was 90,000 symbols backordered. And, and you better believe that had to do with Ringo and the Beatles. All those companies back at that time, Ludwig, Zildjian, and even the, the companies that Ringo didn't use, like Slingerland, Gretsch, Rogers, all benefited because of the amount of kids that wanted to play the drums. So everybody, you could argue, benefited from the Beatles and Beatlemania and the Beatle boom. And I, I don't think any of those companies would have ended up where they are today if it wasn't for them. So I hope you enjoy this show. It was a very special show for me and to see my, my friends and heroes here with me talk about Ringo and the Beatles. So buckle up, enjoy the show, and I'll see you on the other side. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. I'm going to bring my guests on, and I'm really, really thrilled to bring these friends of mine and legendary drummers onto the show. First, Andy Newmark, Joe Vitale, Stan Lynch, and there he is, Jim Keltner. Wow, it's so great to see you guys. Thank you for being here. What an honor to have you guys here today. And um, talking about the 60th anniversary of the Beatles' first appearance on The Ed Sullivan Show, February 9th, 1964. You guys all have a story or stories to tell. I know how all of us were so affected by that. Um, Jim Keltner, I'd love to maybe start with you because I know in 1964 you were already working as a drummer. I mean, you were, you'd probably already done your first session with Gary Lewis and the Playboys and Maybe you could talk yeah, not about in, not in sixty. That was in sixty five. But yeah, right. sixty four. I was already. Uh, I was already. Uh, you guys weren't even born yet, probably. <laughs> well, you were probably in uh, kindergarten or something. But uh, yeah, sixty four. Uh, I was gigging, and uh, and uh, and I've told this story a million times. I'll just get it out of the way. Okay, so uh, 
uh, Cynthia and I had, uh, you know, just gotten, you know, Eric had just come on the scene, our oldest uh, son. He was at that time uh, two years old. And uh, <clears throat> and so when I would leave the house to go to a gig, uh, I would leave instructions with her. I want him, this is what I want him to hear, and it would be Miles or Coltrane or something. And uh, and then one night, uh, this big event happened on Ed Sullivan's show, and she came running in and said, "Come in, look, you got to watch these guys. Look at these guys; they're so cute." And I went in the room and I I looked for a couple of minutes. I listened for a minute, and I said, "Oh man!" And so I left the room, and uh, and I. And and that was it for me with Beatles. That's how the Beatles came into my life, and I didn't uh, I didn't pay any attention at all until I had to. And uh, and then and then after that, it was history. You know, I had all this beautiful history with those guys. And John, uh, George, John and George really loved. I never really told talked to Ringo much about. It. We talk about other stuff, but John and George loved that story that I hated rock and roll. <laughs> Because <laughs> they, you know, especially John, right? He, he was such a he was just a solid rocker, man. He that was his whole thing in life was rock and roll. That's great. I I never heard that story, Jim. Oh, I thought I told that so many times. Well, Jim, yeah. I wanted to ask you. So, so even after you heard them on the Ed Sullivan show, you weren't you were still like diehard jazz like it didn't it didn't turn you on in some way and have you go man i like what these guys are doing i like what that drummer's doing i like this music it still didn't do that not yet anyway um, what have you yeah. done john Don't run it. <laughs> um i just wondered did it did you kind of come around a little bit after hearing the oh, music? yeah yeah yes i think you know like everybody else um when they got you know, to the point where you couldn't listen to anything else, you couldn't hear the radio. It finally, it it started. Um, it, it started, you know, getting to me that that uh, these guys were really good. They weren't. They weren't like the regular stuff that I hated, and uh, and so that that uh, that made a huge difference. Um, and then when I got with Gary Lewis, uh, they. You know, Gary Lewis, the Playboys was was they tried to make us be the Beatles. You know, be like the Beatles, do things like the Beatles. so they would have us do press conferences and stuff at the airports. You know, because that's what the Beatles did. Yeah, and so you you know it it, uh, it pretty soon when I started playing stuff, you know, I I realized that uh, uh, I realized early on that not everybody could play rock and roll. That was a big thing for me to to understand, and I, and the guys from Tulsa are the guys that really showed me all of that. You know, they said, you know, you this is not the way you do. This is not the way you tune your snare drum, and this is not the way you play a shuffle, and this is not the way you do this. And you know, listen to so and so, and they would have me stuff, and uh, and so I would in listening to Ringo. It all made sense. It was like it, it sounded so natural and so beautiful. And let me take this opportunity really quickly to say that um, uh, I just I just had, I know this sounds kind of precious, but Cynthia and I were at dinner the other night. 
and we went to uh, and we were with our friend, a neighbor up the street, uh, Fred Armisen. Beautiful cat, a really good jumper. Like he he plays some stuff. Anyway, he's my neighbor, like six doors up. So he drove us to dinner, and then afterwards he wanted to see what was going on at this Dave Grohl party after Grammy party or something after party. So we stopped to see what it was like, and we had the parking spot. It was like it was just meant for us. We parked, we went in, and the first person we saw, other than Dave, who gave us big hugs, <clears throat> the next person we saw was Paul McCartney, right? He's, he's uh, dancing with his wife, I guess. I, I think it was his wife. There were all kinds of chicks around him and everything. And um, so I told him, you know, I, I pulled him over and, and uh, I told him that we were at dinner with this guy that, that never met a Beatle. Loved that, and it was funny and everything. We had a good time. And so I told him, I said, you know, I just told Ringo this the other day, and I'm going to tell you now. Um, the funny, interesting thing to me about the Beatles is that they got so famous, right? They were so individually famous uh, uh, and collectively famous that you didn't realize you, or you didn't think much about the uh, the fantastic musicianship of each one of them. You know, like like nobody ever talks about Ringo and Paul as the rhythm section, but they'll talk about Purdy and uh, Chuck Rainey, you know, and the great rhythm sections of, you know, you know, but they, you never hear anybody say Ringo and Paul. And, and, uh, that when that occurred to me, I just I started uh, I started right about that time. There's a thing that came online where you could hear only the drums and the bass. Right? Has anybody else seen that? And you hear like Paperback Writer comes to mind because that's one of the first ones I heard. That's freaking fantastic. The drums and the bass. First of all, Paul McCartney sounded like Jameson to me. He had that 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 beautiful. Uh, you know, on-off bass thing. You've got to have that quick release that you have to know how long to leave the note. You know, bass is, is an incredible thing to be able to play. And if you play it wrong, the poor drummer will always think he sucks, right? So uh, anyway, that I told that to Paul, and he loved that. And uh, uh, I've gotten so far off track now, I don't know where I'm at, where, what, I, what I was trying to say. So... It's a good thing you can edit this stuff. No, man, that's great, Jim. And I was just going to say, I don't know what I, I was headed somewhere, but I don't remember what it was. No. Well, I, I, but I think you make a great point that I think people don't make enough, which is Paul McCartney is absolutely one of the greatest bass players ever of to, all time. Of all time, and and doesn't really get the credit. I don't think for, for well, he and, doesn't. He's just he doesn't. He's so famous for other things and everything. And then as the Beatles. You just think you don't think of them individually when you're hearing them. That's how powerful they were as songwriters yeah, yeah. and a band. You know, there, there's never been a band like that. And then Ringo, man, listen to Ringo play Paperback Writer by himself with with just Paul. It's 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 just it's perfect. It's like right. as good as Al Blaine or Earl Palmer or any of the guys that used to thrill me when I was listening to them. You know, up close at sessions. So, Absolutely. Yeah. You yeah. know, that's that's extraordinary, really. Um, 
Anyway, yeah. that's, that's what I got to say about that. No, that's great. Thank you. And, and I, I wanted to ask Joe Vitale his thoughts. I know um, you saw them live that night, like a lot of, you know, 73 million people did, and how you came away oh. that night after seeing them. Well, you know, I'm sure I shared the moment with millions of people. You know, I was already in a band, too. And uh, I had just I was 14 in 64. So I was in a rock and roll band and and we played locally at this high school in different places. And and uh, but that was uh, my 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 second gig because I played with my father. My father was a jazz musician. And so, like what Jim Keltner said, <laughs> my father hated the Beatles because they, you know, he was a jazz guy, you know. Yeah. And uh, and so uh, the night of February 9th, you know, uh, uh, we all crowd around the TV, and and um, you know, I, you know, we've been listening to their songs on the radio. I, I looked it up just today because in lieu of what we're doing here, eleven. Top 10 hits in 1964 they had. I don't think any other band was able to do that. Uh, uh, I mean, it, it, that's incredible. I, I think it, it's the whole first album, probably. Every one was a hit, you know. Anyway, so when when I got done, watch, when the, after their performance on Ed Sullivan, I said, to, I turned around to my dad, I said, that's what I'm going to do. And he goes, no, you're not. <laughs> and <he> goes, <laughs> you know, the argument. And I said, he said, they only know three chords. And I yeah. said, yeah, but they're the right three chords, Dad. You know, and uh, it was that same argument as everybody had, I guess, back then with their parents. But um, uh, you're going to go to school and you're going to go to, I want you to play jazz all your life. It's like, I, you know, it didn't matter what, what he said. I was doing that, you know. And um, um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it you know, we it was the first time you know remember back then we didn't have youtube or internet or all that stuff so we didn't have much chance to ever see the beatles live performance especially live you know performing and uh, we saw little video clips of them but technology back then was nowhere near today and so when we finally got to you know and they played live on ed sullivan you know and when we finally got to see them live it was just a it it you know it answered all our questions. Are are they as great as we think they are? And yeah, they were. And um, yeah. uh, back to what you guys were talking about, about McCartney being a bass player. You know, it's difficult to play guitar and sing. It's a little more difficult, I think, to sing and play drums. But I, I, I don't know. I think it's hardest to play bass and sing. That is a whole different animal because your bass is doing something totally different than your vocal, whereas your drumming and guitar playing or piano playing. And yeah. that's how great he is because there's only a few guys like McCartney, like Sting, like mm-hmm. um, Getty, you know, different people out there yeah. that, that are incredible singers that are bass players. It's hard to sing and play bass. And I think he's probably the best uh, that ever lived at, at that. And, um, uh, but anyway, um, uh, it's funny, Jim, when you said you hated rock and roll and, 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 and Lennon laughed, I'm sure he hated jazz as much as you hated rock and roll. <laughs> That's it. That's exactly right. So you guys just, you know, you fit. It was good. <laughs> oh, man. And oh. so, um, I mean, um, 
you know, and and last year I uh, I did a, a little residency with Joe Walsh. We did it on uh, the Stephen Colbert show. He had done two or three artists like uh, residencies there. And it was that's the theater. That's the CBS theater where they played. Yeah. And what blew my mind was I was there a long time ago when when Letterman was there. But what blew my mind was uh, I forgot how small that place is. It It's just not that big. And and um and, and nothing changed. And back then with black and white TV also, remember, we watched the Beatles on a screen about this big, you know, right. we didn't have giant screens and black and white. And and so um, when I was at the Ed Sullivan Theater, just I walked around and just just had to get the vibe, you know, just wow, this is where it all went down. And I asked the one guy there backstage, I said, show me the dressing room where the Beatles were. You know, I got to see it. And he said, oh, yeah, it's right over here. And it's it was like ten by twelve. It was just this little nothing with you know concrete block, and it was funky with pipes in the ceiling, and nothing had changed. He said, "This is where the Beatles dressing, you know." And you know, I think Topo Gijo might have had a bigger dressing room <laughs> than the Beatles. You know? So, I mean, it, it, the whole thing is just you know, I'm so so we're all so blessed that we lived during this time. And we're musicians and we shared this. And um, I would have never grown up at any other time in life. We were all around 14, 15. So we were teenagers when other than you, John, you're 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 the baby, baby here of the group. But we, we were all at a perfect age when they hit Ed Sullivan that night. And it just affected all our lives. And um, and a proof of it is here we are 60 years later talking about it and, and we're still doing what we do. And, um, yeah. uh, so, you know, I wouldn't have changed a thing in my life. And, uh, uh, eventually, uh, after I, I, I started playing some bigger gigs and I was on TV a couple of times, my father, he finally came around and said, <laughs> Oh, okay. You know, but you know, they still only, they never learned more than three chords. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he never, he never let that go, you know, but, uh, uh, but God love him. And I learned, I learned a lot of music from my father, but um, anyway, so absolutely. that was that night and I'll never forget it. And, um, uh, and thanks, John, this is awesome. I love this conversation, especially with you guys, man, you guys, you you all understand all this, you know, you've been there and um, you know exactly what we're to all talking about. Back at you, Joe. Yeah, absolutely. Andy, um, I know, you know, you were, I'm going to say you were 13, almost 14, 1964. I was 13 and a half. 13 and a half. Yep. Already playing drums, right? I had turned 14 in July. Yes. Yeah. And how, yeah. And, and you were already playing drums at that point, right? You were already. Yeah. 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 I was playing. I might've even had some bands going in my basement, but we'd have been playing ventures. Yeah. Right. The ventures, that's, you know, bulldog and walk, don't run and that kind of stuff. And uh, like Joe and Jim said, you know, I had been hearing the Beatles on the radio for several months leading up to Ed Sullivan on uh, Murray the K, Murray Kaufman, 1010 Wins, New York. 
was, um, you know, they used to call him the fifth Beatle or something. So I was hearing them on the radio and liking it. And like everybody, I mean, we were all fascinated to know who was behind this and what was going on and what did they look like? And, you know, it was such a scene, the whole thing. You know, I was caught up in it. I mean, I didn't have goosebumps from their music, but I liked it. But it wasn't goosebumps time like it would have been a year or two later with Otis Redding or Sam and Dave. I was like an R&B black music guy. That's the shit that really gave me goosebumps. But I liked them and I definitely wanted to see them. And I remember the night in the room and calling my parents in to watch it. And um, I I was excited seeing it. And the main thing I, I was feeling was, okay, I've been doing this thing, playing the drums now for several years, but I've never had a vision in my mind how... I would actually do it as an adult and make a living from it. I was digging it and I was playing and had my little band listening to the ventures, but I had no vision of where do you go with this? Uh, There was a blank. And when I saw the Beatles, all of a sudden I saw where a white middle-class kid from the suburbs could go with music. It's like, whoa, okay. So I could do that and try to be like them and Ringo. And there's an outlet. Like, do you know, I don't know if I'm explaining it, but yeah, I had no vision at 13 years old about, well, how would you do this for a living? It's just, I knew I liked it a lot. But when I saw them, I said, oh my goodness, there's the pathway. That's what you do. That's what we can do. And, you know, every white kid in America picked up an instrument and everything turned around. And all of a sudden, it was like respectable to think about being a musician. Or at least it was in my household. My father was a lawyer. But, you know, all of a sudden, the Beatles made being musicians sort of like an okay road to go down, sort of. But that's what I got from them that night was, okay, this this is doable. This is obtainable. And it took me many years before I appreciated how they played and the, the uh, as Jim said, the, the rhythm section of Ringo and Paul, how tight they were. I didn't really appreciate that till maybe 19. I started like cluing into it in 1975 or six or seven because I was so hung up on just black, funky music and Sam and Dave and Otis Redding. 
that I just didn't let the Beatles in. Yeah. I mean, I, I knew the tunes. I could sing the tunes. But it, it didn't grab me. Mind you, looking back, Ringo and Al Jackson were identical. Al Jackson was on all those records I was listening to from Memphis. Fact of the matter is, he was a groove merchant, two and four, one and three on the bass drum, made it sit down. Ringo was doing the same thing. They, they are no distance between them. Yeah. But it took, it took me a long time to appreciate the group, Ringo, and, well, just the Beatles, their musicality, but in particular, Ringo. You know, because back then, everybody was comparing Ringo to Buddy Rich. Yeah. And, you know, people were saying, oh, well, is Ringo a good drummer? And people were, like, thinking about cats with chops like Buddy Rich. And everybody was like, oh, well, come on. He's not, like, a real drummer like Buddy Rich or Gene Krupa or Sonny Payne. Come on, get real. (laughs) But the the fact of the matter is, even at, I'm telling you this, even if I had been presented with playing on those songs, even after I did the Sly and the Family Stone album, Fresh, you know, I was all hung up in all my funky bullshit. Had I then been approached with playing those songs that the Beatles recorded 10 years previously, as just some artist coming to make me going, here are these songs. I still, at 24, 25 years old, did not have the musicality to play those songs and make them sit down and swing and lock in like Ringo. I'm telling you, if those songs had been presented to me in 1974... I'd have still fucked those songs up with all my funky bullshit. I'm telling you, it's it, it's. I feel exactly the same, Andy. I, I feel you, man. I know, Andy. I know what you're saying. I yeah. I didn't have it in me, even at and Ringo. Ringo was only well. I don't know. Was he 23 years old? Maybe when he cut you know he's, the early ship. Yeah, he's 10 years older than you. Right. So, so it, 23, where, did, where, did, yeah. where did Ringo get these instincts from? Living in Liverpool, right what here. was he listening to? Where did where did he get the the instincts to play that shit? So simple, locked in, no different than Al Jackson or Bernard Purdy, locked into the groove with no ego. I mean, it's like, it's amazing that someone that young had the sophisticated instincts of Ringo, who had no education in drumming at all, just all from the heart. And I still not. cannot play a real proper role, like a buzz role. Yeah. Sort of, sort of do it. But, I mean, this is the guy we're talking about. This is really glad you said that like that. That's so true. Uh, 
I and I, and I don't think that the drummers that we admire so much, so many of the other guys in that you know in the rock world, made part of huge bands, great hits and great music. I don't think I don't hear any of those guys being able to do what Ringo. When you hear them live, uh, those real funky videos of them live and girls just screaming, you know, and first of all, then you realize that Paul, I guess, had perfect pitch. Is that correct? I, don't, I mean, that's what I've always heard. Uh, and so he never sang out of tune, which made John be able to sing perfectly. I mean, the vocals were magnificent, right? Yeah. And But the, the you listen to those little funny, I mean, not funny, listen to those little nice little pop songs that are iconic really now, but, but they were just pop songs. And for Ringo to play exactly the right appropriate shit, I, you know, we, we, we took it for granted then, because like I say, it was too big to look in. But now when you went, for me anyway, when I see those old clips, it, it's extraordinary. I, I, uh, and I love knowing him to be able to tell him this shit, you know? And he's in Ringo. He likes it. Too. He likes hearing it. Who wouldn't? <laughs> yeah. But, but it's, it's extraordinary how he just, what's the, what's the, I can never think of the ones when I'm trying to think of, uh, the real pretty little pop songs where you really have to play just right. You just really have to play this shit right, Andy, and you're right. You know, uh, I tell myself, I don't think I, I would have overplayed or I would have underplayed or I would have thought thinking or whatever. But this freaking guy got right to the business. And I mean, this is live we're talking about. Now, this is not a recording or and it was way before any kind of help they could get, you know, as far as pro tools and stuff. I mean, these guys, it was extraordinary, all of them, and they. I know, and we haven't even spoken of George or, or John's time. Mm. You know John's time because you played with. We're 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 a, a batch of a small batch of people who got to play with. John. He was cut down at forty. He was beginning. He was beginning, man, and we got there before he was cut. And so. Mm. Two of us that got to play with him, and he was extraordinary. You couldn't go with John. The only place, like when I listen to records that I played on him, I just, I go, oh, God, you know, I wish I'd have, I just wish I'd have, you know, but that's me. I'm happy with my playing. But but uh, you couldn't, even though I know that I could have played better, everything was like first take, second take. There was never with John on anything so you had to you know but my point is that you couldn't go wrong with him playing mm. couldn't if go you listened that's a, he his was so freaking great and and George was the same George George was exactly the same. George would get you by soulful thing or another it, it just there's always something that would keep you let you and guide to go do the right thing well, that, doc that documentary that was on last year that showed, you know, that thing we all watched about Abbey Road, or not Abbey Road. Uh, get Back, Get Back, the Making of Let It Be. I mean, you you yeah. really got to see the magic right. watching that. Incredible. And I remember clocking 
Ringo was rehearsing Get Back as Paul introduced the tune. And in the beginning stages of the program, the first few episodes, Ringo was playing a backbeat on the snare drum and the hi-hat. Halfway through the series, Ringo went all hands on the snare drum and was playing the famous 16th note get back groove. But it was interesting to see the evolution. I mean, we all know about evolving through a drum part. We're all, we all know how that happens. But it was fascinating to see that he started out the first few weeks or few days playing a backbeat, but then finally he evolved into playing that snare drum part. Yeah. Um, anyhow, that 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 yeah. was fascinating. Which which was the perfect part. It was the perfect, perfect part. drum part. Yeah, absolutely. And I I always thought it was straight sixteenth notes. No. It's I mean, there's just, I picked up a lot of subtlety in what Ringo was doing. Yeah. But, yeah. I mean, I've listened to videos recently of people send me stuff. It's like them at Shea Stadium in 1965 or the Ed Sullivan stuff. And, you know, we hear it differently now that we're older and, and more mature. But they were so locked in. I mean, Ringo had his part, and he delivered it night after night after night. His part was written in stone, and he honored it and adhered to it. And it just const they just constantly sounded good as a live band. They were so consistent. I mean, I hear them now and go, Jesus, I, I mean, again, I come back to the point. I would not have had those instincts at his age. Yeah, yeah. I, w- yeah. I want to ask Stan. I just was going to make a point, and uh, and what you said, Andy and 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 Jim. You know, the fact that you guys were a little older and already drummers, I think, makes a big difference in terms of like when you said, Andy, you didn't get the goosebumps necessarily that so many people got that night. But Stanley, being a few years younger. Um, I want to say maybe four or five years younger. You were probably about nine, Stan, or close to that? Um, In 63? 64? Yeah, I was just, I was eight, eight or nine. Eight eight or nine, okay. Making everybody give away their age, I know, but... Oh, no, I was was a little, I was was like in third grade. Yeah, yeah. Uh, So um, you got to kind of get, take a picture of... My my perspective. First off, it's lovely to hear you guys. This is fantastic because you were already on the roller. You were already on the ride. You were on the ride. You already had a pathway in your life, and you felt you could. I could listening to you guys talk about. You were already music was in you. You were already on that road. I I was in. I'm 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 playing cowboys and Indians. I have a cap gun. You know this is. <laughs> This is who I am at this time in life. You know, I'm 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 coin collecting. I'm uh, uh, I'm looking for arrowheads in the creek. You know, I, I'm in a small town. We don't even music. Music for me was the marching band in in the University of Florida. I we go to the orchestra. There wasn't my my parents were school teachers. This wasn't even 
you know, I listened to Ferrani and Teicher records at the house. My parents played like the Three Penny Opera or stuff like, you know, did nothing to do with contemporary music, not even Elvis. We weren't, they, we weren't aware of any popular culture in my house. My sister was a little older. So obviously the Beatles, you know, when that, when that needle dropped, my sister was like, you got to hear this stuff, Stan. And I'm going, mm, what does it even mean? You know, it's like, and then, but when we finally saw it, you know, I saw it and I just went, my brain exploded. And the next day, everybody in school is like parting their hair on the wrong side, trying to get it to go over, you know, but we're just little kids just trying to react to this. Like, and the girls are screaming and that's all they're talking about for, for, so I wasn't, I, I've been playing, I was a violin player and I played trumpet and I sucked at all of that. I didn't care. And then, but then it was like, I want to play the drums. And my father said, well, if you're going to, you've already washed out on a couple gigs already. So we'll give you a drum teacher. And he gave me a practice pad for two years. And I couldn't even like, I had to prove to them that I had to learn the rudiments before they would even give me a drum set. But all I kept thinking was, you know, by then it was the British invasion. I, I kept seeing like Mick Avery's and Ringo and Charlie Watts and, you know, all the cats on TV and they look so cool. I just wanted to be a drummer. You know, I just, that, so it's, it, for me, it was a huge invitation. Like seeing Ringo play was like, okay, you want, you want a piece of that? You know, so I, I missed all of the, the high level musicality of it. I just knew that this, this is, it's just me and everybody around me, the guys that became the band that I was in, we all just went batshit. And like, we, you know, like we're going to do that. We're just going to figure this out and we, we're going to learn songs. And, but it was, it really came out of left field for me. Like, but it really, I remember meeting Ringo the first time somewhere in London, we were playing and I looked over and, Oh, we were at a Dylan gig and, and he was there with his wife. And I remember thinking, Oh, this is the opportunity I get to say hello. Like I have a reason to say hi. And as I'm walking up, I've probably told this story too many times too, but I realized shit. I'm, and I literally, what came out of my mouth was something defective. Oh, thank you for my car, my haircut, my, my, uh, my life. Every, uh, uh, and I just, Bullshit came out of my mouth like rapid fire. And I remember he hugged me. He hugged me and he tapped me on the shoulder. And I just heard him say, I know. I know. Like another drummer shits the bed that meets Ringo. And it was like, but that's, that was how you know, it was just too much. It was just too much. You know, like they were, they were so fully realized you saw these young guys, they still looked young, but they sounded so mature and so fully evolved. And they were, and they were, you know, later. And then like, as soon as we tried to do it, you know, now I'm like 15 or 16 with the guys. And you realize not only these two, this band had the two best songwriters, the two best singers. So we're not yeah. even going to, we're never going to give get near that, but Ringo's drum parts seemed to be attainable, even though I couldn't play them in the groove, but I could learn in my life. It made sense to me, you know, to play boom, that, boom, that, boom. I could learn that like, and these parts like that, that, that dun, dun, or I could learn 
like the little, the cool little buzz fill in to help, you know, you know, and, and like I could try, or at least I could try. I couldn't get it. You know, I could never, the shit swung so beautifully, but I could, it gave, it, it, it gave me the template. It was like, here's your template, Stan, anything close. And you can probably, you can probably have a job because you're, you're, you're going to be out of the way, get a sound, kind of get your look actually don't look like you're stressing you know Ringo taught me all that as a kid like no stress the guy never, you know they were smile smiled there's a they, they were oh geez they, they made it look so fucking easy it's just it was extraordinary and it, it, it hasn't worn off and then like you guys I'm, I joined now I joined the conversation where I go yeah now as an old fart I look at these guys and go where did they get the presence and right. I you know, I yeah. I months trying to learn all my love and by John Len John Lennon's guitar part. You know, like the tri the triplet. It's like holy shit, and it's it's changing chord. It, it ain't three chords, man. It's some serious like the tablature on that. It'll get you. Uh oh, you know, there's 15 songs you could steal in just that one progression, and and he's playing it like, and then you see it on Ed Sullivan, and he's just. He's not even looking at his hands. I, I you know, yeah, yeah. Same with Ringo's, the Washington D.C. concert where they show that side of him. Finally, you get to see. Finally, when you get to see Ringo from the side, you know, because usually it's just the front, but you see how hard that, and how committed the physical component that he's yeah. throwing his body into it. It's like Jesus. The kid's just flopping and he's killing it, and, and you just go, man, uh, you know, yeah. Those kids are awfully good, you know. Now that I'm looking at them, <laughs> my God, those kids are good. <laughs> you, know, yeah. you know what's interesting? Yeah, Ringo still plays today exactly yeah. the way he played. Yeah, yeah the shoulder goes down, and yeah. it's like it's, it's beautiful. Right. He, he he shows you the groove. You know, recently quite a lot. He just had a little tembler. Oh, yeah, I saw oh. something happen there. What was that? Did you guys just rock? Uh, I'm sitting here, and I'm rocking in my chair. It was about oh boy. three months ago. I'll go okay? and find out. Probably on the news. Are you okay? But, but what's that? Are you okay? Oh, yeah, no. I mean, no, no, no. This is, you know, California earthquakes are like, if you just sit in your chair where you are right now, you just kind of move back and forth oh. to the right. It was a 4.5, Cynthia's saying. Oh, that's well, a big way. You'll feel but that. Yeah. Somebody just moving my chair slightly, and you guys didn't even notice. Well, my camera. No. Uh, my camera went. The visuals on my screen went all wonky. Yeah. Oh. Same here. No, come on, guys. Hey, so anyway, let me, let me just say this real quick, because you'll appreciate this. If you haven't heard it, uh, uh, Ringo, I found out that I won't go to where it happened because that's I've said that so many freaking times where Paul goes through the drum head, right? Uh, you know, we're playing, he's playing on, on Ringo's drums and I'm playing on my drums and a record plant one crazy night and he goes through the head. And, and when we're done, I watched him go through it. And when we're done, I'm going, my God, you just broke the Ed Sullivan head. And he said, oh, I'll, break you. I'll buy him a new one. And it was that. 
I've said that so many times already, but that was a big deal for me. You know, like, what? That was the Ed Sullivan hit, that drone. And then I found out uh, that that was the same drum that he used, the same drums that he used all from the very beginning, right? From, uh, okay, I'm, okay. So from the very beginning, uh, and, and dig this. It was a calf head. That was a calf head on that snare drum. Wow. Which and and then when I when I told Ringo that I said that was a calf head, man. I, and, and he goes, yeah, it had a little slit in it. It just had a little cut, and and he had a little piece of tape covering it. And this guy played the all those shows, all the records. Well, oh my God. Which I think he got to the Maple Kit, right? But before that, it was the it was that snare drum with yeah. that head, and then there were tea towels and all that stuff all that period. But that drum lasted all that time, and it was a cat head. Wow, man! And that just me. That's just because I'm a I'm a I I when I played on Roger Hawkins' drum, uh, snare drum when I first met him, it was a Dynasonic and a calf head. Wow. And, the drum, that's the sound that you hear on When Man Loves a Woman, all the way up through the Aretha, all that was a calf head on a Dynasonic snare drum, fussy, little, you know, with the snares tight and everything. I went and I did was buy one of those drums. And the second thing I did was put a calf head on it. How'd it sound? It was not Roger Hawkins. <laughs> it never is, is it? Oh, Ringo, man. That head yeah. to be on Ringo's drum, and it was cast all that time. That still just kind of blows my mind. Yeah, and you know, Jim, I, he used that drum even with the maple kit that you were talking about. I want to say he used, still used that that oyster black, you know, matching snare drum right up on everything. I mean, that's I think the 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 word out there is that. And when you think about how different he could make that snare sound like in my life or some of the older tracks where the right. snare was really tight and cracking. And then you get right. to the tea towel phase. And also it's testament to the way he played. Like he played man grip, right? But he didn't put his whole shoulder into it. He didn't play like, yeah, he didn't do that. He played like, like this. He played like, to, and they played to his level. Right. And now when they got to making records, that's a whole different game. Then. But all that time where they were making history and blowing everybody's minds, he's playing like this, and they're playing to his level. You ever notice? I mean, you didn't hear, you didn't not hear, right? you know, when you heard Led right. Zeppelin live, Joe, you, you may have heard uh, Led Zeppelin live or out there. Yeah. I don't know if you did, Andy, but I got to stand behind him when, one time at a, some concert somewhere in, in Europe. And I was standing behind Bonham watching him play. And first of all, later on, when, when guys played really hard and they were saying that uh, Bonham was their favorite drummer, I, I always like to say that, you know, he didn't hit that. He did not hit that hard. Yeah. Jazz player, first of all, that's what his love was. So when he was playing, he was, he was playing, uh, you know, he played firm. He played really, really confident and strong, but he didn't hit that hard. I got I got to say something too, and Jim, you may know the answer to this. 
when uh, Ringo came to one of our gigs once a long time ago, I asked him about this. I think he, in, and I may be wrong, I've been researching and I can't find the answer. Maybe you know. Did he invent Matt Strip? Because before I saw him on Ed Sullivan, I'd never seen any drummer play match grip and he changed drumming for 95% of the drummers. There's, there's some guys out there that play traditional or both, but most cats now are playing match grip and I had never seen anybody before Ringo playing match grip. You know, that is really a good uh, question. And I asked Ringo, I said, where did you learn? How? Why are you playing? When did you start playing match grip? He says, he "said somebody handed me the sticks, and that's the way I played." Because you know, of course, he's he's a lefty that plays a right-handed right. kid. We all know that. But right. I asked him, and he said, "No, I didn't learn that from anyone. It's the way I played." And I said, "Do you wow. realize that nobody, I think, before you ever played like that, and now everybody plays like that? <laughs> you know, and and it's quite amazing." And uh, the other thing, real quick, I'll mention is uh, in the last week, because of uh, February 9th, they showed a bunch of photos, I think even you did, John, of Ringo's kid on the Ed Sullivan show. Did you see that board that was mounted behind his seat? Because the drum riser was only the yeah, size yeah. of his stands. And my God, that would look so dangerous. Uh, I mean, his the, the 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 feet of his throne were like one inch from the edge of, of like a four or five foot riser. Yeah, so they yeah. mounted a board so the feet wouldn't uh, that that was frightening to me to see. That. I know. <laughs> and, and he was hitting the drums on that. I mean, like you say, he was oh, playing he was animated. Live. He, 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 he was hitting the drums. There. He was very animated. Yeah. 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 I, Andy, what were you going to say? TV show last year. I think I saw Ringo playing with a drum throne that had a back. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. 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 They all have thrones have backs now. I don't. Yeah. I don't know when that happened, but I can't play like that. It bothers me. Yeah. We I have, tried it. We have an interloper gentleman that's uh, going to oh, pop wow. in in a second. An interloper. Um, I wanted, I was going to ask all you guys, and here's Kenny Aronoff. Sorry, I'm late. <laughs> hey, Kenny. Kenny, this is a perfect time. I'm sorry, I'm 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 really late, so I gotta go. So All Kenny, right. you taking my place? Okay, uh, oh, that, that's awesome. Take your place. <laughs> I'll I'll do. That. <laughs> Jim, careful what you wish for now. Yeah, <laughs> I think uh, Jim and I have taken a couple of times. I took his place, and a couple of times he took my place, and a couple of times we were in the same place. Jim, That's right. before That's you right. run, if I was going to just ask Jim before you run, if you could take a second and just the first time you met Ringo, I'd be curious to know when that was. If if you uh, if you even recall when you first met Ringo, and I promise I'll I'll let you I'll let you go after that. Yeah, you know uh, that's uh, I asked him not long ago, and uh, because I I didn't quite remember, but it was uh, it was uh, it, it was with John, I think. Or no, no, uh, I'm sorry. It was with George. Bangladesh was, uh, concert? Shortly before Bangladesh. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. I, I, okay. And, uh, and he said, and George said, uh, uh, George told me that he asked Ringo to do Bangladesh. And Ringo said, I'll do it uh, if you have Jim doing it. That's what he, that's what he told me. 
Wow. That, you know, that, that just pumped me up like you can't imagine, you know. Yeah. And then uh, to, to uh, be playing with him, uh, I thought, because uh, I was on his, uh, he was over here. He was on my right, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, I remember thinking, uh, if this is going to work good if I don't play the hi-hat or I play really minimal hi-hat, because that was one of the magic things that I loved about Ringo's playing later on as I got to, you know, uh, familiar with his playing, was his hi-hat was just perfect. It was always just fucking perfect. And mine was just always off. Like, I just never, I could never get be happy with my hi-hat. So uh, I said, okay, so this is a good excuse. I won't play very much hi-hat. I'll be letting him play the hi-hat. And then I'll be real minimal with fills. And he looked at me a couple of times as if to say, go ahead and you know, play some fills. So I so he just boosted me in every way you could be boosted, you know. Yeah. He I that's why I tell people I say Ringo, when I met Ringo, you asked me when I met Ringo. I, <laughs> I I can't tell you exactly when, but I do know that the way he brought me into his uh life was so important man the 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 confidence that i got from ringo telling me that he that uh you know like complimenting me or so, i mean anybody could have could have done that but it was ringo doing that and and the fact that he liked us playing together cuz he had played with some other guys and and he, he it was he said it was a struggle i think it was some kind of it was like and um so that compliment to me gave me like such confidence you can't fucking imagine i i i would have never maybe have gotten that that much you know confidence in my ability that one and how blaine when how uh showed me a few things and and gave me some compliments uh, that how blaine and ringo that was for how me old, how old yeah. were you jim how old were you when you got that confidence from those guys how old were you oh with with uh hal i was 23 i was just joining gary lewis and hal blaine is there at the session the first session to play tambourine i thought but he was there in actuality in case i didn't know play on a song or something he would come and sit in you know but fortunately i was able to do it but fortunately because Hal Blaine, this is why I can't say it. We just did a thing for him uh, uh, on John's uh, thing the other day. I was saying that Hal was this famous freaking guy that had played on all these big records and everything. And yet he just was like my uncle. Hmm. He was like the uncle that I could go, hey, how do I do this? And he just embraced me, man. And just he'd show me stuff. I'd say, how do I play this? Like a bass drum on the on the on the, on the bottom of the quarter and uh, with a dotted uh, eighth tied. Uh, do I hit a cymbal? Do I play not the cymbal? Because they were telling me, you know, they, be careful with cymbals. If you're going to play on records, you got to be careful with cymbals. And he said, "Here's the way I would do it." And he sat down behind my kid and he went, "Boom, you know." And he just played it like with all this authority. And I said, "Oh shit, you just hit the shit." I didn't say that to him, but I said, "He just hit the shit cymbal." <laughs> I guess I. And so he taught me little things like I learned stuff like that. And then when he would give me the okay, it was like truly like a like one of your uncles saying pat you on the head. You know, that was huge for me. That was twenty three years old. And then with Ringo, I was probably what uh, 
30 or something. We were, you know, and so that, that's, that's to me, that, that's, uh, that's, that's a good golden way. man. Yeah. That's golden. Yeah. yeah. Man. Man. That's, 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 that's why I asked the time. time timing is everything with stuff like that. It could yes. change your course. Your whole yeah. it's like one I, little I, thing. It's the whole thing is different. I would love to be able to hear you give me your version and Stanley and Andy and John and Joe. Joe, I can't see you for some of you moved out of the frame. But no, I'm here. He's in. I'm here. Let me just say, please, quickly. I love you guys so much. And you guys are like family. We're, we are family. And 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 a bass player just told me the other night that he envied the in his life because as a bass player, he he's not like the guitar player. The guitar players at least have, you know, they can talk with each other in little clubs or whatever they get. But the drummers, most of all, are the guys that get together. That's that's what uh, uh, I've always heard from the other guys. And I just want to—I want you all to know—I for different reasons. Andy, for his fucking amazing reasons. Stan Lynch, many, many conversations about why Tom Petty was so killer. Kenny, for everything. <laughs> Joe Batali for so much great shit. I can't even begin to. Say. So I just want to say, I love you guys, and I'm fine. Okay. See y'all later. Thanks, love Jim. You too, Jim. Thank you, right love back. you. Later, man. <laughs> oh, okay. I hate to leave. I love you. Turn your... Love you too, Jim. Thank you for being <laughs> All right, here today. Jim. All right, man. <laughs> uh, Kenny, welcome. Welcome, welcome. All right. Dude, yeah, I'm sorry Kenny. late. Holy shit. I, I, we're at... And well, I saw uh -oh. you. Was it Royal Albert Hall? Remember that? I was playing with Fogarty. You came to Royal Albert Hall. I remember. And we were hanging out with Santos. Yeah. You, me, and I remember. Santos. Great. Yeah. yeah. We definitely connected. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. That, that's not hard to connect with you. <laughs> and John Fogarty's totally like kicking ass. You know, yeah. that was the first. That, what was wild about that show, I wasn't even aware of it. Of course, I'm just focusing on what I'm doing. But the last time he was at Royal Albert Hall, and this ties in with the Beatles, was uh, when Creedence played at Royal Albert Hall. And, uh, I mean, these guys look like a bunch of hillbillies, you know, like they, they didn't even look like rock stars. But the Beatles had just announced that day when played at Royal Albert Hall back in the day, either that day or the day before that they were quitting playing live because they couldn't. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. So actually, so check this out. The pressure, John said, pressure was back then was extraordinary because then it made them the number one rock and roll band in the world. For what? It, that's what the stats were saying. That's what everyone was yeah. saying. It's the Beatles, then Creedence, because you have to, have to understand, Creedence had like five hits. It might have even been one, two, three, four, five on the radio at one point. But they had ridiculous. It was the Beatles and then Creedence. So when Creedence, uh, Beatles quit. Playing live, they felt the pressure. Oh my God, we're now the band, and and John was not. He's not really wasn't the frontman back then. He just played. I don't even know if he said hi to the audience because I saw the footage of them playing at Royal Albert Hall. He just he just played the songs. 
They just played. Well, Kenny, you know, there's a, a documentary that, that you, yeah. maybe you're talking about. And I yeah. think what it was was they had actually, the Beatles had announced they were breaking up. I think it was the actual. Oh, it was the, breaking up. The end oh, of the oh, band. Oh. You're right. And I, and I think at that point, yeah. it was kind of like 1970. Creedence had like, you know, they just had yeah. hit yeah, after hit after hit. And, uh, and yeah, because I had, I had Doug, I had Cosmo on with me. We talked about that. And wow. yeah, they were, they were the biggest band in the world at that time. Same. Well, I hope Joe yeah. can, can jump back. I, before we wrap up, I wanted to have all you guys tell um, a, a story or tell how you first met Ringo. And you've met Ringo before, right? I've met him. I've never spent time with him. But so the encounters have been brief. And uh, even in those encounters... I was very reluctant to uh, be too enthusiastic about meeting him or talking to him or just, you know, I felt the need to lay back and be super cool and and not let myself run away with questions and this and that. So I... I was very, very reserved in, in my few meetings with him. Uh, I just felt the need to be what I considered to be cool. Yeah, yeah. So I don't have any stories in that regard uh, with my any time with Ringo. We we never went deep. Was it Was it after you'd recorded with John? Was it after you'd done Double Fantasy? Uh, before, before and after, like down at Ronnie Wood's house in the 70s, when we did Ronnie Wood's solo album, uh, Ringo came in and played one night. Uh, there were various, you know, it, it, I was in London a lot, so. Yeah. And I bumped into him quite a few times before and after Double Fantasy. Yeah. Okay. Well, Stan, well, you... You gave us that great story, and you told me that before about meeting him when you were, um, you know, playing with the Heartbreakers and and with Dylan, and he was there. And um, I think that's that your story is so similar to I think everybody's. I'll just say that quickly that the first time I met him, it was 1995, and you know I did the exact same thing. I said to him, uh, you know, Chonis had arranged for us to have a little meet and greet for some folks from Zildjian. And, you know, he kind of just, he sort of put his arm around me on it when I said, you know, if it wasn't for you, I would have never, I probably wouldn't have been a drummer or something. And he said, I hear that a lot. You know, it was a similar kind of like, you know, like this kind of reassuring smile. And what struck me the most about him that first time and every time I've seen him since is he's, he's very, he's very quick witted. You know, he's very, when he's in a, when he's in a funny mood, he can be so funny you know like just uh and and I'll, I'll just that's you know you always remember the first time you meet one of your heroes and that was a really funny special time when he's like yeah i get that a lot i've heard that before you know yeah <laughs> joe vitale yeah you and you have you have a kind of a cool connection to ringo ringo and all the years you played with joe walsh and joe's married to ringo's wife's sister so there's that whole connection right there i call i call joe that's his beetle-in-law beetle-in-law yeah <laughs> beetle-in-law and so you, um, you, yeah but um 
Now, the first time I worked with Ringo was kind of strange because I didn't even play drums. I played keyboards because uh, Joe was producing an album for him. And um, I think, uh, which is the, uh, it was seven, uh, he had done this song called As Far As We Can Go, As Far As We Go, or something like that. And it's a long time ago. And apparently the tra- he, he, he hated the track, but, it, you know, Ringo, it was Ringo's best vocal he had ever done on any record. You know, you know, what it's what everybody said. Right. And Ringo loved this vocal, but he hated the track. So Joe Walsh was producing this album. So Joe called me one night and he says, hey, I want you to play keyboards on a on a Ringo album. Yeah. Are you kidding? When do we start? So um, it was just a one cut, but it was a really, really, uh, uh, it was a challenge because what we were supposed to do was, it was such a great vocal that we, that's all we had. And we were supposed to create a track for this vocal. So we had to, it was difficult because fortunately Ringo being a drummer, he sang in, in, in with such great pocket and with great timing. Everything he does is in a pocket. So we took his vocal, made a, a hi-hat click track out of it. Then we did some percussion. Then I played the piano on it. Then Joe did guitars and all that. Anyway, and I, and I got a, a, a call from Ringo, uh, which blew my mind, because I had just met him. I didn't know really know him, you know. And he, he was so thankful that we saved this track because that was his favorite vocal that he ever done. And, mm. and it was a really spectacular vocal. And so that's how we got, you know, started. I really haven't done that much with him, but that was a great way to be introduced to him and, and to make him very happy about a track like that. And it was a challenge because, you know, to 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 overdub drums, like I'm sure all you guys have done, or overdub a guitar or bass, that's one thing. But when you have to create a track to the vocal only, just the yeah. vocal, there yeah. were no, back then there were no click tracks or any of that yeah. stuff. And fortunately, like I said, he sang in such a great pocket, it wasn't hard to develop a, a, a hi-hat yeah, click. Yeah. And w- once we had that, that yeah. was the hardest thing. Yeah. Once we had that, we just went for you know, th- when we did our yeah. thing. But, um, and then several times, you know, because of Joe's relationship with him, he, uh, he comes out to a lot of the shows we do, and he always sits in and plays Rocky Mountain Way with us, right? And for me, it was like, you know, I, I mean, I, I had to pinch myself because you look over, you know, we're talking about, you know, February 9th, 1964. And, you know, and now, you know, so years go by and all of a sudden I'm looking over, there's that guy and we're <laughs> playing together. I'm like, can this be real? I mean, and he's so nice about everything, you know. And um, and that's a beetle over there, you know. And <laughs> it, it it blows my mind when I watch that video. And and he's having, he's smiling. He never is in a bad mood. He he was smiling, having a good time. And um, uh, I would let him take you take the fill. We do hand note motions. You take go ahead, and then he would do that one, you know. Anyway, um, so uh, it's been that it, is such a great groove on that tune. Oh, thanks. Oh, yeah, killer. <laughs> I love that tune. Well, it, it's it's not hard to play, and, and and especially when you got Walsh playing the, the way he plays, and so um, it's always really a treat when he shows up and plays because um, uh, I pl- I. 
play keys with Joe. So Joe always has like two drum sets on the stage, you know. So when I'm, so it was perfect because every time Ringo would show up, mm. he would always sit in and play that. And, um, uh, you know, so and, and he's and he's so easy to play with. His pocket is deadly, man. He's so easy mm. to play with. And you just it's, you know, so, you know, we've all played with other drummers. When yeah. we did that album, Andy, with Joe Walsh. You're a breeze to play. You know, you're, you're so easy to play. There's guys that, you know, and I, I get that because someone's a little ahead. Someone's behind. Yeah. Some guys don't gel, you know, but some guys, they really gel, you know. And and um, so he is one of them guys that's so easy to play with, man. Yeah. He just, you know, and um, he, 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 he doesn't, he's not real busy. He's just all about the pocket, you know, and that's yeah. the way he was on all those songs, the way Jim Keltner said that, yeah. you know. And and he, Jim really nailed it. How he was able to nail those pockets and play the perfect drum part in his twenties. He was yeah. so young. Yeah. We yeah. were still trying to figure out how to set our drums up. In the 20s. <laughs> exactly. Wait a minute. I like my seat higher, or I like. Oh, and I got to move yeah. the ride symbol. Yeah. He's already playing these like incredible deep pockets. So yeah, <laughs> I mean, um, that's the one thing I think we all have taken away from Ringo is 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 playing the perfect drum part for the songs. And when you hear, the, you know, um, the stuff that he's played, the ticket to ride, the drum part on that is, is ridiculous. Uh, it, all of them, uh, you know, come together with one of my favorite songs, and that's always fun to play. But um, uh, Greg Bissonette, had a, his brother plays bass and they had a Beatles tribute band back yeah. in the, I think it was the nineties or something like that. They were like really good too. Yeah. And, um, and and when you and there were just four of them and they sounded amazing. It, it's all about the way they wrote songs and and the parts and they played. You play the parts and you only need four guys because they all sang and yeah. you know they were all good players. But but um, you really appreciate how great they were and how great those songs were and especially how great Ringo was when you actually play those songs and you play what they did. You do what Ringo did, and it's like, man, this guy was a genius, you know. And um, it was so fun to play that. And But um, anyway, yeah, I mean, you, you've all been associated with them, them in that sense. And, and um, you know, I mean, uh, you, you all know what I'm talking about, you know. Absolutely, yeah. My friend Tim Jackson, who's watching live, great drummer here in the Boston area, said, how about Ringo's right hand ride on help um which i've always been mesmerized by the way he plays the song help the that almost like 16th note you know shuffly kind of pattern that he plays in the hi-hat that just drives the song and it's so clean and it's just you know there's so many to me there's so many examples of what you just said joe that that like it's you know the parts are so great and they're and they're not that easy to play they sound like they would be oh, and, yeah, yeah and no, then you try no. to actually play them the way he does you can you can anybody can sort of bluff it and and sort of cover it so to speak but if you want to really make it sound authentic the way greg did with his band and 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 of course the way ringo does it's man it's there's like some serious shit going on and a lot of those yeah songs. and we and we've all copied that swish hi-hat thing that yeah, he does yeah it, it's a whole different sound you know yeah, and, right. you know where did he learn he didn't just learn he just did that from here you know i mean yeah yeah and, and when you play like that and you as soon as you start playing that hi-hat the way he did you, you know you sound like ringo just because yeah, of yeah, that, that alone sweeping, 
yeah, yeah. that sweeping thing was it's... so cool and um I mean, we we all. I'm sure you know when we were young, we all studied it. I did. I studied everything he did. And unfortunately, back in when I started it, like I said, there was there wasn't YouTube and there wasn't internet. Yeah. It was very difficult. What's quite amazing to see them play live, you know. And and there wasn't that much footage of. I mean, close ups of Ringo during that show. There wasn't much close ups of anybody. And but but it was still just awesome to see him play live. You know, Joe, as you said earlier, he was a lefty. Imagine as a righty, you play right-handed, don't you? Yeah, I do. Imagine playing some of those hi-hat things that Ringo played with your weak hand. No way. I couldn't do it. I mean, I can barely play some of them with my strong hand. (laughs) The idea that he was playing that stuff with his weak limb. Yeah. It's kind of, I don't get it. How it's do you not fair. Yeah. <laughs> it's not yeah. fair. Well, well, Kenny, Kenny, kind of, Kenny was one of the first guys when I met him, he did explore that. He was one of the first guys that explored that. He said like, man, if you take your play, your left and you were one of the first guys I saw. Hurt and so Kenny good. taught me a great fill. He said like, when you're playing, drums he said you just take your left hand and just get it on your hat and you just go around your kit but you don't ever stop that hi-hat that's he, great that's great it was one of the coolest things like just invert your like so if you're just boom bat doom, bat, 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 that your left hand is and it was like well son of a bitch yeah <laughs> like, but then but i watched kenny like play really fast eights and by god man if he any way you want him and it's like yeah. so he it, you you've incorporated some of the ambidextrous lefty righty yeah you've got some of that going and it's 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 really it is a beautiful it's like but you're saying I know Ringo but yeah just like being able to be a lefty and uh, being a righty and playing a lefty but crazy Kenny he'll go there yeah the, the reason why the reason that happened was in. When I got with Mellencamp's band, I had to kind of dumb my playing down because I was trying to be, I was, I, before I got Mellencamp, I had like a fusion band. It was like I was trying to be Billy Cobb, which was the biggest mistake in the world. But, uh, so I thought, well, you know what? I'll start playing left-handed. And we went into a rehearsal one day and John's playing this song, Hurt So Good. Check this out. So I'm like, and you know, John was a, not an easy guy to work for. So he would play a song on acoustic guitar and maybe two times, and he go, what do you got, Aronoff? Give me a beat. I'm like, no pressure. This is like 1982. So I thought, well, fuck it. I'm going to try this left-handed thing. And the beat is just boom, ba, boom, ba, boom, boom, ba, boom. So I start playing with my left hand on the hi-hat, and he stops, goes, what the fuck is that? I went, oh, man. He says, why haven't you played that beat before? I went, my point, the point is, which you guys got, John heard... A whole different feel. It was kind of like a beginner. Yeah. Uh, you know, it wasn't, it was a little sloppy. And sure enough, I started because in that, our band was so simple. If you took the hi-hat away, it made everything naked. And when we recorded that song, I played left-handed, crapping in my pants the whole time. But when you heard the playback, the drums were so loud in that band. You took that hi-hat out, you lost everything. Because it was like a big and, loud and Kenny, kicker. Kenny, nobody, nobody sounded better with Mel and Camp than you, man. 
Oh, no, 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 that's, that's, that's no, but you own that, man. You own that. Yeah, yeah well, Stan, yeah. tell us, Stan, tell the story how you almost, we almost took each other's places in our bands. We passed each other in an airport somewhere. I was on the way to Seymour <laughs> and you were on the way to LA. Yeah, like we both were, we were both like, no, I got, now correct me if I'm wrong. This is <laughs> what I heard. Stan, you may have told me. So he's out there, Stan's playing the course, Stan's snare drum with Petty was completely different from mine. Mine's yeah. up high, cracking, slamming, and Stan's got that cool, sexy, gushy thing. And they start saying to him, hey, can you turn your snare drum up higher? And eventually Stan goes, you want me to f shave my head too? <laughs> right? Like, uh. just Blowing. I was on the plane an hour later. I was flying home about an hour later. Oh, yeah. Hey. Lynch doesn't take anybody's shit, man. No, I know. No, sir. Well, it was bad. <laughs> well, all you guys, all you guys sounded best on the records you're well known for. Oh, you really Stan. For I got this. Stan would, oh. Uh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, that. you're this, Joe, you're the same guy. Everybody. Oh, man. Fun. Come on. Ah, Joe, Jesus Christ, with Joe Walsh hey, and Crosby, Stills, and Nash. And e email me addresses. Email me addresses, and you'll get books in the mail. I think I got your book, bro. Yeah, I, I think, think I, you do. Yeah. Yep, I got it. Hey, I, I'll tell you, the first time I met Ringo, this is so typical of me. I, yeah, I, it's, I a Con, it's at Conway. I'm recording in one room, and he, Don was, I think, is producing Ringo's record. And I'm a rare moment that I might be hyper. So, I, <laughs> not I, you, not me. I'm playing drums. I'm already hyper. I come busting in there. What's up, man? And he says, "Hey, Kenny, meet Ringo." I was in such shock. I just went up to him, grabbed him, hugged him, and lifted him up in the air and shook him. And Ringo's like, <laughs> "Typical of me." Dude. Uh, and, and Don is going like, "Oh my god, you're gonna break Ringo." <laughs> I mean, I was I was so excited. I, was, I mean, I, the only thing I didn't do was kiss him, you know. <laughs> oh, and, and Don goes, uh, "Meet Kenny Aronoff." <laughs> <laughs> I was I was so excited. I could I, I I you know for obvious reasons. That was my introduction. Yeah, yeah that's cool. Thank Andy Newmark, Stan Lynch, Kenny Aronoff, Joe Vitale, Jim Keltner, who was here a little while ago, and thank you guys for being here. Thanks, everybody, for watching. And uh, 60 years ago tonight, just about almost this time, 60 years ago, the Beatles' first appearance on The Ed Sullivan Show, life-changing. Thank you guys for being here. And thanks, everybody, for watching. Big Thank hands. you. You're welcome. Thank you. And great seeing all of my friends there. I love you guys. Yes, good seeing you guys. All right, well, that's my show. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, give it a like. Leave me a comment. Don't forget to subscribe to my YouTube channel if you haven't done that already. And the podcast is available on all the podcast platforms, so download it. And remember, no drummers are ever harmed on Live From My Drum Room or Track Talk. And drummers, when in doubt, leave it out. All right, again, thanks for watching. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you again real soon. See ya.